if I were watching through a window and you were going to show me what it's like to be you with anxiety, what did that look like? How are you going to teach me to be anxious in the way you are? So I would want to find out from them what's happening. And, it, and shockingly, it's very, very different from one to the next. You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college. Please note, CWC Talks is not a substitute for counseling and may be sensitive for people who have experienced trauma. All guests' views are their own and do not speak for the CWC, the University of Florida, or the mental health profession as a whole. Hi, Barb. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. I I wonder if you could talk. So you've had at least two distinct careers. Um, can you talk a little bit about your just your background? Because you have you're a psychologist, but you have a little bit of an unusual background as well. Sure. I started life as a, a junior high inner city teacher, and then decided I thought I wanted to work with animals more than people. After that experience, because I wasn't. I wasn't really good, honestly, handling discipline at that age, at the age of 22, handling it in junior high students. And so I did go to veterinary school and uh, became an equine practitioner and an internist. And so I brought to psychology the love of internal medicine and physiology. And so that has informed, in some ways, how I practice. It certainly has made me more open than many to medications. And it helps me to understand and explain medications, I think, maybe better than some people with less of an interest. It's not that difficult to explain it, in my view, but some of us psychologists aren't that interested in it. Uh, so as a veterinarian, I was a small animal vet, a large animal vet, and academic life, which is what I was in at the veterinary school, lasted for about 13 years for me. And then I just wanted to try something new and was fortunate to begin my life in counselor education at UF and then got my PhD from counseling psych at UF. And to me, that was, has made me very happy this career as a psychologist. And currently I do some veterinary stuff nights and weekends too. And I'm just excited to be talking to you now because you retired from the CWC last I year. Failed you retirement. failed the retirement and you're, yes. yeah. So you were out for about a year or maybe not quite. About seven or eight months, though. Okay, and you've you've come back to help us out here during the pandemic, and um, it's just really great to have you back. Thank and you. I, yeah. So right before you left, you, you and I sat down, and I was asking you some questions about anxiety and just kind of I was tapping you for the culmination of some of your wisdom, having worked with college <laughs> students for a long time. And I, I know you balk at that, but in addition, I think to bringing a, a scientific inclination to this, you have also been really open to uh, spiritual practices and what, what we think of more as like the Eastern, like I know you practice Qigong and you've been uh, instrumental in getting biofeedback, which is also scientific, but the biofeedback lab up and running here. So you really bring this like thirst for knowledge, this curiosity, and also a like an interest in 
behavioral change, like what people can do to help themselves with. Absolutely. Yeah. That's where it needs to happen in the hands of the people, not in our, as in our, us therapists, not in our hands. We can push, but, but. And we can point, right? We can push, we can point. But our Uh, students have to do the work and that's the only way through it. Okay. And so since anxiety is such a common experience that students say they're struggling with, it tends to be like at the top of the list across the country for why students reach out to their counseling centers for help. I wanted to get you on record just talking about kind of the culmination of your understanding of what students can do when they are experiencing anxiety? What are some of the ways that students can help themselves cope with anxiety? And I wanted to even start with a very simple question, which is what is anxiety? Yeah, good question. Because what's the difference between anxiety and stress? And you know what? I don't care that much because I am not that interested in giving someone a diagnosis. And in fact, well, us humans, and particularly 18-year-olds and up, don't tolerate change very well. And I think that college years in which these students are told, these are going to be the best years of your life. They are often the worst years of somebody's life, to be honest, and sometimes the best. And the period of choosing a major all the way up to finding a job and then getting settled in a job, which all of this happens between 18 and 30. So let's call that the twenties is a time of tremendous uncertainty. So I think that much of what we see as anxious feelings and thoughts and behaviors in our students is because they haven't had to put up with so much uncertainty in in their life. And so I think certainly that could be a huge cause of anxiety. You're asking first, I guess, what is it? It is, well, I don't know. Let me say it's a disruption of the body, mind, the heart, and the spirit. It's, it's a disruption in, in one of those four areas, if not all of them, that is difficult to tolerate. And at times it's mental, at times it's physical, at times it's a usually it's a mixture of both and it could result from suppressing the heart or suppressing feelings and emotions and it could result from a lack of purpose and i love that although college students are increasing in maybe the mental issues they suffer from more than they did when i was in college which was i don't even know how many years ago at least 40 maybe 50. Uh, I've been to my 50th high school reunion, so it's probably almost 50. The thing I love about them is, although they may be suffering more, they come into our offices with much more insight, much more caring about the world and existential thoughts and fears, much more than my friends and my cohort ever had. So they may be suffering more, but they are even possibly more capable of working through stuff than we were, unless they're the offspring of helicopter parents or those snowplow parents who made life so easy for them, they never had an issue before. That's a different story. And that also could account for an upswing in the anxiety these students are feeling. 
So I think I just like to think of it as high stress or a disruption in, in any of those areas. And we can talk about, I'm sure you're gonna ask me, well, how do you help these students or how do you treat them? Well, I look at all those areas and see which is most applicable to them and, and their problem. How do you ask? Like, what do you ask about? I, I suppose it depends on how much time I think I might have with the student. If I have a single session to work with them and my single sessions are 90 minutes, I may ask less history than I would if I were going to see them for longer, but I would ask them things certainly starting with who in your family has depression, anxiety, panic, drug addiction, alcohol abuse, eating disorders, OCD, possibly PTSD. Is there a family history of that? And if I get the answer is, oh, yes, it's on both sides of the families, one of those things. And I do believe all of those things suffer from similar physiologic or genetic aberrations, let's say. So it doesn't matter that if they say, no, nobody's anxious, but mom is depressed and dad's an alcoholic. All of that tells me, okay, I got to be thinking of the genetics in this student. And I might explain a little bit more to them about how I think genetics could play a role and how then I would move to epigenetics, which simply is the study of what turns on if we call it a bad gene, we call it a mutation, but what turns on a bad gene and how do you turn it off? Because just because everyone in your family has this does not mean that you're gonna have it. It does mean that you may be more likely to have it. So I would start with that questioning and then move to what are your circumstances now? I think that's very, very important. I did two and a half years of private psychology practice before I was lucky enough to come to the University of Florida and work with college students. And one of the things I didn't like about it so much was that some of these adults are stuck, so stuck, uh, stuck in bad marriages, stuck with four children they need to support. They don't have the freedom to make the changes that college students can make. So I love that part about them and working with them, but I wanna know what's going on now. And are you in a shitty relationship? Are you unhappy with your major? What's happening at your home? You know, what is in your heart right now that's upsetting you? So I ask those things because I think genetics and situation do play a huge role in, in who might exhibit symptoms we call anxiety. And based on some of those answers, off we go. And I would just explore. I think my next question would be, so... How does anxiety show itself in you? There's multiple ways to ask that question. That's one. And if a failed answer from that would be if I were watching through a window and you were going to show me what it's like to be you with anxiety, what did that look like? How are you going to teach me to be anxious in the way you are? So I would want to find out from them what's happening. And, and shockingly, it's very, very different from one to the next. I mean, it really is. And as you may have mentioned, I was so lucky when I first came to UF to have the director of the counseling center, Dr. Jackie Ayers, purchase from me top-notch state-of-the-art biofeedback equipment. And that feeds into my interest in medicine and physiology. And one of the things that has happened over the years for me is a student will come in with some kind of complaint 
And I say, wow, that sounds like you're feeling some anxiety. And they're much in denial of, of that. And one of my favorite things to do is to say, well, can I hook you up to my machines and stress you out? And let's see what your reaction looks like, what your body does to this uh, stress I'm going to put on you. And let's see, because my thought is that you actually are anxious. And so that would be one thing I would do with a student who is kind of in denial about about their symptoms. And that, that happens some of the time. So then I guess I would begin to, once they told me how they experience anxiety, I'd be looking to see, well, where does it start? Is it starting in your head, in your mind? Is it starting in your body? Is it really, you just don't know your emotions or how to express them? And how did that happen? You know, so that's a little bit of a, tell me briefly what it was like to be you and your family and what your mom and dad like, and did they spank you every time you cried, for example, then, okay, you can't, you're not allowed to have emotions. And then what's in your soul? I, in this talk, well, we won't distinguish between soul and spirit, but you know, where are you in your connection with the universe, whether that's a religious connection or a, just a God connection or not any of those, but are you, you know, are you in community with somebody somewhere, with nature, with animals, with other people? And I would see where they are with those things. A woman in a conference I just attended was giving a talk on 20, 20 somethings. And she said, she hears so much. Now she works with the older 20s, I'll say, but she said, I hear so much about these 20-somethings lacking insight. And she said, I fully believe what they lack is education, not insight. And I agree with that. And so one of the very first things I wanna do with a student, once I understand what their symptoms are, is explain to them why you have those symptoms. And those symptoms vary from cold hands and feet to you know, extreme panic or inability to sleep or I'm working with a student now who throws up all the time uh, or has nausea a lot of time. They're very varied, but I think it helps them when I can say, you know, don't let somebody tell you this stuff is in your head. It's possible your head leads this by you have a thought of, oh my goodness, I'm about to have a panic attack. Okay, if, you, if it starts with that thought, yeah, it started in your head, but very quickly, let me tell you what your body is doing and why you're feeling like you're feeling and how normal that is for people to feel this way. And so I really think for treating anxiety and depression, education is a really important thing. And that's the teacher in me coming out. So we now got the teacher and the veterinarian in the room. We got to bring the psychologist in the room though that's going to talk about some of this other stuff too, the emotions and uh, even their religion and their spirituality. I don't have anything I feel is off topic for this, including somebody's cultural background and what it's like to be a marginalized racially or ethnic student here at UF, our largely white institution. All of these things I think need to be explored, normalized, and then discussed. And one of the things I do believe personally is if somebody comes in with really bad panic, I think that it's been shown that the more panic you have, 
physiologically, the more panic you're going to have to follow. So it has to be stopped. And if it's really bad, I feel like it has to be stopped quickly. And usually the best way to do that is with medication. I did learn something recently that I didn't know because I was a proponent of any anxiety medication to have around for those students that panic because I know for a fact that it relieves them to know they have something that they can begin to work through this anxiety in the ways that I teach them to. But if it gets out of hand, okay, they can take this medicine that's gonna help them quickly. I'm in favor of that, although most recently in a pharmacology lecture, a um, gentleman said that it is known that benzodiazepines actually decrease serotonin and some of the other chemicals that you actually need in your brain. So that and the addiction potential is probably why our psychiatrists don't like to give this medicine to the students. But I will explain to them why an antidepressant works because you prescribe that and say it has to come every day and they say, well, why? I don't want to take it every day. And so I feel like a psychologist needs to be able to explain to them very well why you do need to take it every day and why it could help with anxiety, even though you're not depressed. So that's, again, that gets back to education. What are some of the more common things that you're teaching students that they can do for themselves? Sure. I love that question. The first thing I do probably is have them breathe for me because, you know, all those meditators from 2000 years ago that talk about the importance of correct breathing, they knew what they were talking about. And we lost that kind of along the way. We lost appropriate breathing. You know that you can watch a newborn breathe and they do diaphragmatic or belly breathing. And then we lose that too. So what we do know is that if you breathe incorrectly, it will often make you breathe too fast. If you breathe too fast, you blow off too much carbon dioxide. When you do that, you shift a lot of things in your body, including your blood flow, and your blood flow is sent to your bum, your thighs, and your heart so that you can escape the tiger that your body thinks is chasing it. However, that leads to a lot of other things. It's an exact example to explain to a student why they blacked out, not passed out, but why they were well prepared for their organic test and they go in to take it and they suddenly forget much of what they studied. It's because they became anxious and the blood was not needed in the prefrontal cortex to help them continue to think. It's needed to just keep them alive and breathing and go to their muscles so they can run away from the room. But in today's life, we can't do that. And so it depends what they give me. Is this what's happened to them? Then I go into more depth about it. But I just really try to normalize all of these symptoms and assure them, you didn't do this to yourself. This is not your fault. But your breathing stinks and I'm going to look at it. And the first thing I'm going to do is teach you how to fix that. And you better leave here and you, it's going to take you up to a year to normalize it if you really work at it. And I know this because I had exceedingly bad breathing. I was lucky enough not to have panic or anxiety, except really later in life with menopause, I think I had some. And that did me some good to understand how awful it is. So that's, that was a useful thing. But um, I want them 
to understand how important breathing is. It sounds like you're talking about breathing from a scientifically validated physiological level, not that whole like, oh, you're stressed out, just breathe. No, no, no. This is, let me tell you exactly why you need to breathe. And let me ask you, did your neck and shoulders hurt? And a lot of the times they will say, yes, how did you know that? And I then explained to them about the primary muscles of respiration, the diaphragm and the intercostal muscles, and how that differs from the muscles they are using to breathe, which are the little strapping muscles of the neck and the traps. And when you're lifting your chest up and down, instead of breathing out forward and, and backward and dropping your diaphragm down, when you use those little muscles, you hurt them. You get trigger points and you get pain and you get headaches. And so I think that's the number one important thing for me to look at with them. And, you know, I realized how fortunate I was. I have the best biofeedback equipment. I could hook them up if I wanted to, even if I'm only meeting them for 90 minutes and put straps around their belly and their chest, and they can have a visual aid into how badly they're doing or how rapidly they're breathing because fast breathing is not good. And then they can learn right there in front of me how to fix that. And so I know a lot of psychologists don't have that option. And I feel so lucky I had that. And after that, then I'll discover, so what are your thoughts about medication for this? If I think there was this genetic component or I think it's bad enough, they deserve some relief quickly. And many of them may say, I don't want it. I want to try everything first. And I get that. And I'm proud of them for that because I explain, especially to my depressed clients, you know, medicine's the easy way out. It may help temporarily, but it is the easy way out. There's other things you should do. And that is so true for anxiety. Uh, and this is the most simplistic medicine ever. I'm not pretending it's brilliant, deep internal medicine, but I talk to them about cortisol and adrenaline. I talk to them about flight or freeze mechanism and how all that interplays. And then I say, listen, what's happened to you over time is most likely your cortisol has gone up. It's gone up either because you had a terrible life situation. Your parents were horrible. Your parents were great parents, but they were fighting behind the scenes and you had to listen to that. Or it could be no fault of your family, your high school, your IB program. It could be simply that you came out of the womb as a very motivated perfectionist and you apply these rules to yourself that are just really tough. And that has been, you know, that's part of your problem. And so how all that happened is all the stress makes your cortisol rise. Your cortisol floods across the blood brain barrier and it alerts an area of the brain called the locus ceruleus, which is the one that's like a periscope. It's out coming out the top of your head, looking all the way around you, 360 degrees waiting for the tiger to come. And if your cortisol over time has risen, takes it a while for it to rise, unlike adrenaline, but if it has risen and it stays up there, again, through no fault of your own, it makes you very sensitive to dips in serotonin which happen to everyone under any stressful circumstance. Again, that's not even genetic, that is biologic. You walk into stress, your serotonin drops. But if you have suffered a tough life for a long period of time, then your locus ceruleus goes, oh, holy hell. You know, when you walk in somewhere and your serotonin drops and it tells you this is bad, you're about to be eaten alive. 
And so the first thing the student needs to do is figure out a way to lower the cortisol and it will take time. And there is only one way to do it, or there's only one good way to do it. And that is to get control of your mind, calm your mind down. And you can do that with meditation or Tai Chi or prayer or Qigong or yoga and any of those practices. And, and I'm not talking about yoga for weight loss and yoga to be strong. I'm talking about a spiritual oriented yoga that's about quieting down. Studies have shown that come home from a stressful day, put your feet up, have a glass of wine and watch TV or read a novel. And that doesn't help the cortisol nearly as much as a dedicated healing practice. So for the student who says, I don't want medicine, I say, you need a healing practice. You need to start slow. And I talk to them about which one of these things might you do and start five minutes a day doing it. Then I move to adrenaline, which is also known as epinephrine in case I uh, use either term when I'm talking here. But adrenaline is a quick up hormone. So I say to you, to my class of students, take out a pencil, we're having a pop quiz. Everybody's adrenaline is gonna go up. That is a biologic thing that will happen. Your genetics determine how high up it can go before you're about to have a panic attack. So that's how those two interplay. But the trouble was that was the fight or flight mechanism and we were meant to flee. But you're sitting in the class and you can't. So what do you do about that? And so I counsel them, again, if you're gonna do this without medicine, you gotta lower that adrenaline and I would advise you to do it in the morning. Why? Well, because when you get out of bed, you'll have a certain basal level of adrenaline that's below the threshold for which you're gonna get anxious. But you walk out in the world and you miss the bus and then you walk into class late, your adrenaline's gonna go up from your baseline. And it might throw you into panic if you're a panic person. Uh, so what if you got up and jogged for a half hour, got your heart rate up, which is how you're gonna use up that adrenaline. You're gonna flee before the tiger starts to chase you you're going to lower your baseline adrenaline so that when it does go up, it's not going to go up over that threshold. Like you've built yourself a buffer for that. Exactly. Good way to put it. And so those are the three things that are crucial for a student who doesn't want to take medication. But essentially, I mean, you're talking about a kind of internal chemistry lab that we have like if you're not going to bring in chemicals from the outside or adjust your chemicals through medication, then you kind of have to make it an in-house job of how do exactly. you manage? Okay. You're your own pharmacist. Yeah. And if you got to take it seriously and you got to do it or you're going to keep suffering those migraines or that nausea or, or the lack of sleep, whatever it is. Now I should mention right along with this biology we're talking about, there is more and more research showing that what you put in your mouth is highly critical to depression and anxiety both and other mental illnesses and so it's the usual stuff that we don't want to hear but eat your vegetables eat your fruits stay away from sugar and exercise i mean it's all true and if you want to go this alone this is what you have to do and i would say to them it's not doing you any good to come in and we talk about this every week if you are not going to take these steps but if I have someone that's not willing to take these steps, then I really want to go a little more into what the medications do and why I think, you know, you deserve a break from this. And here's what you have to do to go get some medication. And I'm not opposed to that at all for them, as long as they understand 
that when they quit the medicine, if they haven't changed their life, divorced their husband, stopped doing so much drugs, whatever it is that's getting in the way, then you're going to be back to where you started. What about things like drinking, smoking, eating a bunch of junk food, watching a lot of TV? Like, why are those mechanisms or those behaviors so common and so compelling when we're suffering, when we're experiencing depression, anxiety? Like, why are those such common go-tos, you know? Sure, because you can escape. It's an, it's an escape room for us. You know, everybody has their own poison, maybe, that they do. We, we try so hard to feel better. And I think a big thing that we can do with these 20-somethings, we psychologists can do, is teach them what, what is human nature. Human nature is that when I was 15 and my parents were fighting or yelling at me, I would stomp off and shut the door and not engage with them. And so now I'm 25 and this stuff is happening around here and I'm doing the same thing, but gosh, it's not working anymore. Or, you know, I used to drink or I used to smoke marijuana and gosh, it's not working anymore. But that human nature thinks, well, that's because I'm not doing it enough. I'm not doing it right. I'm not doing hard enough. I'm not doing it long enough. And so what human nature does, not just 20 somethings, is do it harder. Well, let me try harder and harder to make this work. And it's just how we were wired evidently. And it is the stupidest thing ever. And I was thinking about this, why do we do this? And I, having had to come back and adjust to technology and Zoom technology as an example to do therapy with, what technology teaches us is that it isn't stupid to do the same thing five times in a row because the fifth time of doing the same darn thing, the computer finally works like it should have in the first place. So in some ways we're getting reinforced for this innate behavior. Yet I think one of my main goals is to teach the student do something different. I don't care what it is, but stop doing the same thing that I understand why you're doing it. I understand it used to work, but you're telling me it doesn't work. So for God's sake, stop. And um, I think that's pretty important to teach them. It's interesting because I, I think that we come into counseling, uh, people may come into counseling when they're aware that it's no longer working, but it still works enough. It's like, yeah. you know, it's like it still provides a kind of relief in the moment, but the, co- but the costs have gotten higher. There's like a growing awareness of the costs. Like, yeah, Absolutely. I'm smoking a lot of weed and in the moment I feel better because I feel dreamy but I no longer have motivation to do my schoolwork and I sense that it's impacting my concentration or, you know, it's, it's like, there's usually still some relationship with that thing. Um, And, and what's striking is like the alternatives, the like, you know, taking responsibility for your own internal physiology or chemistry lab that's inside of you that takes time. Like I've heard you say a year now, a couple of times or six months, like work on your breathing for six months or do this for a year and see how you do. And I'm, I know. I'm just like, that's why I, I'm Damn, Barb, that's all you got. You, like, that's a long time. <laughs> it, you know, it, well, you know? That's for the breathing. I'm not saying you got to meditate or exercise for a year okay. to get relief. You'll okay. get relief in a hurry from that. Okay. But even still, it's like, that takes effort. You know, it takes it effort 
I don't mean to complain, but uh, like the pot's right there. The wine is I right know. there. I know. Enjoy it. <laughs> I don't tell anybody don't do that. But let's look at, hmm, on the one hand, you're telling me you're here because your schoolwork is failing and your parents are mad and you're about to lose your scholarship. And on the other hand, you're telling me that marijuana helps you. But then on the third hand, you're telling me that actually you think it might have something to do with this failing. And I'll look them in the eye and go, there's no doubt about it. As much as you're doing, of course it has something to do with it. So you choose. You want immediate relief? You want to live a better life for a much longer time. And, and what I'm talking about is habits. My habit, I didn't try to fix my breathing until I was probably 45. I didn't even know that. So I had 45 years of bad breathing painful muscles to try to correct. You know, these students, maybe they have a lot less and maybe they can fix their breathing faster, but it is a daily experience. I teach them how you could check in with how you're breathing. Simply put your hand on your belly and your chest and see which one's moving more than the other. And pay attention to how often you are a breath holder. And you got to do that over and over again. And you can do that every time you sit down for a class, every time you sit down to watch TV. If you want to get relief, that's what you got to do. And it's not going to happen overnight because habits are ingrained. So I'm sorry if I'm depressing. No, I, I think, you know, I think part of growing up, if I were to think about my 20s as being a really difficult decade um, in a lot of ways, like things didn't start to really get better until my 30s for me personally. But the 20s are about, I do think there's an opportunity to begin to take responsibility for ourselves and for what we can do because our parents are also taking less and less responsibility for us. And that's part of the trajectory is you know, how am I contributing to my own suffering? Right. Even if I have been victimized, even if, you know, society culture has caused harm and damage, like family, even if I may come by all of this pain, honestly, what can I do to begin to support myself to suffer less? And that, that doesn't mean that that lets you know our racist culture off the hook or our you know it, it people may have harmed us um but if i'm going to feel better usually the people that have harmed me don't come back and clean up you know it's, they don't they ever, don't almost yeah, never almost never yeah right it's and true you can wait a long time hoping that that happens and i mean fundamentally you're talking about empowering people. And I know that that word is common these days, but really like empowering people for what they can do for themselves, but it is work. And I guess that's the part of it that I think, especially with technology these days, there is, I think we all, I don't know. It's like, I, the quick fix, like just, I thought you were going to fix me, Barb. Like now you're yeah. telling me I have to go meditate for five minutes a day, or I have to, I don't, I don't know. Like, I guess I'm wondering how do students respond? They seem to understand it. I have many of them that I see on an ongoing basis that really begin to do it. They do. I mean, I don't think five minutes of meditation is asking much, but over time that needs to increase. It's not going to stay there. 
And the same is true for exercise. You know, walking, you can start out walking, but you really need to get your heart up if you are needing to get rid of extra adrenaline. Um, I know that what one of the things that I think we therapists should do is instill curiosity in these students. And I tell them to experiment because one of the things they'll say, and I've said it too, what do you mean? I am so, I am, this is me saying, I work two jobs. I was taking care of an elderly mother. And at some point I also had a daughter at home. And you're gonna tell me, or I'm gonna tell myself, I have to exercise for a half hour day and meditate for a half hour day? When, when do you think I'm gonna do that? Because you're also telling me I need to get eight hours of sleep and cook healthy meals. And this is a conundrum that we all faced. And that's where the curiosity comes in. I'll tell them, yes, you have to, I, when I was in veterinary school, I took my books to the toilet. I mean, I never had a free moment, it felt like. But the experiment is, well, what if you go out and exercise? And I'm not talking about going to the gym and having fun with your friends and spending a ton of time doing this. But what if you seriously do something for a half hour and then come back and check on how your concentration is? And my bet is, and research has shown that, you will do better having lost that 45 minutes of studying than you will if you take your books to the toilet and sit there and study, even though that seems counterintuitive. And the only thing I can do is tell, tell them, test it out yourself, because I can understand that this is a hard thing I'm asking. And again, if you want to do the easy way and you're a bad panic patient, I mean, seriously panicking is what I meant to say, go get on medicine you can take every day for the next four years till you're done studying and, have, and think you're going to have more time. And then I got news for you. You're going to have less time, but you don't know that right now. You are a, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking you are a very direct person, Barb. Yes, I know. How has that worked in therapy for you? I am sure I drive some people away. When I just say, look at this relationship you're having. Why would you be in that? You know, I'm sure. But I don't have tolerance. I don't tolerate people who, who refuse to change too well. So, you know, it has its pluses and it has its minuses. But I want to, I mean, this is another thing I think is important in life is to be a genuine person. And I want to model that for my students. So I'd like them to be genuine too. Because when you're trying to be somebody you're not, there you go. There's the anxiety provoking thing right there. So yeah, it's not always, it's not always the best. And I'm not always well loved and it's okay that part of saying it's okay seems important like that's not your goal isn't to be liked no no my goal is to do the best I can and to help in the best way I can and sometimes being direct is potentially not the best way and sometimes I can't stop myself and sometimes I can so it depends on my read of the student and, or my client, whoever that is. And I can be wrong about that. And I feel badly when I am. I share that kind of impatience with you. Um, I think I might be better at hiding it uh, or think that I'm better at hiding it sometimes, but I share that 
that impatience sometimes with folks who are slow to change or scared to change or just not ready to change, even at the same time where they're desperate for change and asking for help changing. I wonder, um, you know, after all your years on the planet, Barb, where do you think that comes from in yourself, like that Mm. impatience for people? I don't know. I mean, I don't exactly know the answer to that. I I think there are personality types that are born with certain views on the world that then are, you know, what is the word confirmation bias, you know? So uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't really know. And certainly our past experiences color how we are too, but um I mean, my guess is that you're like, just in, in terms of how you have always been growing, like you're always reading something, you're always studying something, you're always absorbing something, trying something new in all the time that I've known you. Like, I wonder if you don't have much tolerance for yourself, you know, of course not. No, no. And that's what gives me the right in my own stupid way of thinking. And I don't mean I think this deliberately, but I can be, there's no one harder on me than me, not even close. And in my younger days, if you think I'm harsh or hard on people now, you should have seen me in my thirties. I didn't have tolerance for anybody being five minutes late to rounds at uh, the veterinary school, for example. I've learned to be much more tolerant but I'm sure it comes from upbringing, but I think some of it comes from, you come out of the womb in certain ways. Uh, And you know that I like the Enneagram and I love to study that because it's a way out of some of these things that are the worst things of that we all do. So that personality type is, fits me. I mean, one of those fits me pretty well. And that's just being in pretty direct and impatient. <laughs> well, but there's, I think that there's pros and cons, right? Like the, that whole idea of like your greatest strength might also get you, bite you in the butt from time yep. to time. I've recently been searching for a new medical doctor, right? And I sometimes wish that they would just tell me what I need to do. Like if they would just scold me a little bit and say, good grief, Sarah, like eat more vegetables. Like I, you need to eat three vegetables a day and I don't care. You know, I don't care how busy your life is. Like next time I see you, I want to hear that you've been eating three vegetables a day because that's what's going to be best for you over time. And I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Like I I would do it. I would do it. If they did that. Yeah. That would be encouraging to me. But see, that's you. Yeah. There is somebody else, a friend of mine just went to her doctor who said something like, you're just flat out too fat. And that's part of the reason you have X, Y, and Z. Very direct, very true. And she left that doctor. You know, so it's. She needed a different approach. She needed a softer approach. And I guess we psychologists need to be able to suss out which approach works the best with, with certain people. And We'll, you know, we'll see. I recently had a student that I love dearly and we've met week after week. And by that, I mean, maybe five sessions and she comes in, she's being abused, not, what's the right word? She's being taken advantage of badly by her family. 
that are not stepping up and they're making her step up to take care of her father. And week after week, she comes in and explains all this. And I finally had enough of it because we spent weeks talking about, you know, okay, how could you do things differently? And I finally said to her, I don't want to hear it again. Do not come back in here and complain about your family and what they're doing to you. We've done this week after week. Nothing's changing. We can talk about other things. And I thought, I wonder if she'll no show um, again, not again, if she will. But she came back, didn't bring it up. And hopefully we can move forward and we'll see what happens over the break. But that was direct and it might've been too direct. It could have been too direct, but I really just had enough of it. We're not going anywhere. We're not making any changes. I know we didn't plan for this part of it, but I'm wondering, have any of the people that you've counseled ever told you that you hurt them or challenged you back? Um, oh, yes. Yes. How uh-huh. is that for you? Like, how do you respond? I hate it. <laughs> I don't want to hear that I failed you. Um, so how do I respond? I don't hesitate to say I'm sorry if I think I messed up. I am sure could become very defensive and I try hard not to, but I'm sure I'm not always that good at that either. Um, And I'm not saying that this happens that often uh, where actually it's face-to-face, we can talk about it. If I think I have done that, when that client comes back the next week, I ask them, how'd that go when I said this to you? And there was one that I felt so badly about just this semester. I forget what it was the very first week, but I said something to her that I thought, I bet she'll never come back. And she did. And when she did, I said, how did it sit with you when I said X, Y, and Z, whatever it was? And she, she said, not so good. And I could then thank her for coming back and trusting enough to come back and tell her, here's what I think I did wrong. And I'm really sorry about that. So I don't have a hard time doing that. But I'm, I still get defensive, you know, and I have to really try to cover that up because that's no way to be. It's not about me. This is about them and their therapy. Well, and I so, wonder, yes, I yeah, I mean, I think me too, me too. And I think that as I listen to you, though, it's like, you're not trying to be mean. It's oh, coming no. from a place of care, but also trying to be like directness is a form of efficiency too. Like it's, you know, we work in a system where there's limited resources and there's students who are waiting to get in and that there's this element of like, you have a limited amount of time with somebody. You don't want to hold back if if their well-being is at stake. Exactly. And I feel a pressure for the system's sake to make something happen or let's cease what we're doing. And, and I, I don't wanna be the person that they just come in each week and tell stories and gossip to me. As fascinating as that can be sometimes and as often that can happen when I'm feeling not well or I'm tired and they wanna talk, I might let them do that. And that's not a good thing, I don't think. But that, yeah, that puts you more in the relationship of like a friend or something. and. And it's different. Yeah, you, you're there as the psychologist. I want to help them. That's why I'm doing this. I want to help them feel better. And I certainly don't intend to make anybody hurt. Not, a, not any one of us would. Uh, but maybe I, I could be more likely than some to just directly tell them what I think. <laughs> and a lot of them maybe don't like that. So it's the chips in the bank thing. You know, you got to get some chips in the bank first before you 
withdraw. To build some trust. To build exactly. Some, yeah. Yeah. I have really enjoyed this conversation with you. And I think that it speaks to, you know, some of the basics of like the user's manual of being a person in a body in a, in a stressful world, you know, that we need to have an understanding of how to work with ourselves and how to work with these different systems. But it also is nice to hear a little bit about you as a person. And I think I would just want to end with what are some things that you personally find yourself using in your life to cope with? I know we've talked in the past that you have experienced more on the depression side than the anxiety side in general, but just what have been some practices or some things that you draw on in your life to cope with the ups and downs? I wish I could lay out a beautiful smorgasbord of all the helpful things I do to stay healthy. And I got to be honest, much of my life, I felt very overwhelmed by all of my responsibilities. So what do I do? I have a real spiritual bent and a real belief. I almost hate to say it, but that, you know, being dead is going to be a great thing for me. I am hopeful. I feel like a good person. And so, you know, this old, I'm an old Catholic, I'm going to die and go to heaven. I'm not looking forward to the process of dying, but I do believe that we're here to learn life lessons. And I do believe that when bad things happen to good people, we need to look at what, A, what is our personal responsibility? I'm big on that. And this younger generation is not, in my mind, being forced to take as much responsibility as I think they should. So I believe that, how did I contribute to this awfulness? And yet, mostly what, how can I learn from it and do better and be better? So I, some of it's that. And what do I got to do? I got to do something different. Why do I leave various professions? Because I want to do something different and I want to learn. So I think some of what keeps me motivated is learning new things and helping people and animals. I certainly became a, a certified Qigong instructor under two different Qigong masters. And I love that practice. So that for a time was the practice that I did every day. I used to argue that that's the same as meditation and it's different. And so I'm trying now to do more meditation. And what else? I'm working on a gratitude, you know, being grateful. My personality type is one that looks out at the world and sees everything wrong with it. And I think that's a, it's a depressing way to, to be, but it is what it is because the, the upside is people like me also can see how to fix it. But then the downside is I want somebody to do it yesterday, not in six years. So everything's got up and downs. And I think I understand that. And I, now I walk in nature about two miles a day, but I have a lot less on my plate. Now my daughter's grown, my mom passed away, you know, so there there's some responsibilities much less than they used to be, but I'm not a paragon of what's the right word of self help and spiritual brilliance. You know, I'm not, I wish I were. That's what I love about you is you're still working on it. You know? (laughs) Yes. I'm still working on it. Uh, Nobody's done doing that because I think that's what we're here for. And I, 
wonder, do we get to leave this planet and go on to something better once we finally learned everything? I don't know if that's true or not. Some say that, but I do like learning and I, I've been gifted with that curiosity and love of learning and that's been good. I've been straddled with a mind that's a monkey mind that has ADD. And so learning is tough for me sometimes too. It's the downside of that. Any last words that you would, you would want to close with, Barb? Yeah, the one thing I haven't said yet is I think that psychologists and counselors need to be bearers of hope. Mm. And that is huge. And we have to be authentic and genuine when we say you can do this and this will work. But that's a gift to give to our students if they don't have it already. You know, when you're deeply depressed or when you are suffering so much from anxiety or other things, that's hard to maintain that hope. So I would say maybe that's the number one thing. Give them hope, get them to do something different, uh, no matter what you wanna diagnose them with. Those two things are important. I also wanna work with the 20 somethings and I do lay out my career path for them because even within those different two different careers, three different careers, I've taken different paths within those. So I move around a lot. And I use that as an example for these students who come in, A, scared about when they're freshmen, scared about what is their major going to be. And then when they're juniors and seniors, oh my goodness, what is my career going to be? And I must know the answer and I must do this now. And I like to be an example of, you don't have to do this now. But then I'll say, but don't go off and get married and have a bunch of kids right away, because then you'll be stuck and you won't be able to do all the stuff I did. I had my daughter at 43. So I had the benefit of having a huge amount of time to devote to the veterinary academic world. And I did. And then I got to the top of that mountain and looked around and said, man, is this all there is? And that's when I had my daughter. I wanted to do that. And my husband was willing. And so the best thing I ever did, uh, even better than switching into psychology. I forget where I was going with that, but Anyway, it sounds like, I mean, it, the bearers of hope is a beautiful oh, phrase. And I wonder if one of the places that you've been able to draw hope from is always something more that we can learn. And there's always something more that we can try to do. Yep. And ways to grow and be a better human. Absolutely. That that's genuine for you. That's been part of your life journey. And that, yes. that is also what you want to impart to students. Yes, indeed. And that nothing's permanent. Yeah. You know, right. almost nothing's permanent anyway, except death, I guess. And taxes, isn't that? But somebody, some smart person once said that. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, but just even, and, you know, last point that you said that I wanted to emphasize was that idea of you don't have to know how it's all going to play out. In fact, you probably can't know how it's you all going to play out. No. But if you can try to keep your options open. Yeah, yeah. I do believe in forward thinking. I don't want my students to be stuck in fear of the future, but I don't want them to put their head in the sand and not think about it either. It's a balance and, and that's absolutely right, yes. Thank you, Barb, it's so nice to talk. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can find CWC Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Please leave us a rating and review us. Email us at cwc-talks at ufl.edu with your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. 
Show notes, resources, and more can be found at counseling.ufl.edu slash cwctalks.